in these 18 verses, a lot of observations that could be covered in studying this chapter. I'm going to deal with the major theme of the chapter this morning. But there are many observations that could be noted. Moses, for example, as a picture of Jesus, who is the chief mediator, the one who approaches God on behalf of the people. Moses, going up on the mountain to commune with God and God's glory, ends up coming down twice. Now, this chapter alone does not record that, but if you remember, Moses comes down in chapter 32, the people are sinning, and Moses throws down the tablets because he's angry. And then Moses has to go back up to the mountain to the glory of God to get the tablets a second time, and then he comes down in peace. Could be a picture of Jesus coming the first time and bringing his people home, and then Jesus coming a second, uh, and, and, and then judgment falling on the earth the great tribulation and then Jesus coming a second time it's interesting that we see God's uh, confirming of God's covenants always preceded by sacrifice as was the case in Noah in Genesis chapter 8 God would enter into covenant with Noah but first there would be a sacrifice in Genesis chapter 15 God would enter into a covenant with Abraham but first there would be a sacrifice Here we see God enter into covenant with his people. First, there is a sacrifice. And ultimately in the New Testament, Jesus on our behalf would allow us to enter into the new covenant with God. But first, there would be a sacrifice. We could note the sapphire stone under the feet of God. Sapphire is this deep blue stone that yet is clear that you can see through. And that's what it's Uh, talking about here. It says that that his feet rested upon that sapphire stone. Jewish tradition tells us that the Ten Commandments were originally written by the finger of God on tablets of sapphire stone. That blue color representing the government, the law of God. There are many other things that could be observed. We're not going to deal with these things this morning. I want to stick to the major theme that I believe God's communicating here about the confirming of His covenant with His people. There is one of what I would call the smaller observations that I do want to address in the introduction. The reason I want to address it is because it is the only thing I see in Exodus 24 that is a warning We find it in the two names, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron and therefore by birth priests. Nadab and Abihu would later be killed by God for making false fire in the temple. One of the things that's just so important that we have to see here, one of the smaller observations, is that your position does not save you. Your title does not save you. Nor does being in proximity to the people of God save you. Nor does even 
seeing God, experiencing God, save you. This is not the only place the Bible teaches this. I mean, honestly, we see it from beginning to end. A couple of major other thoughts that come to my mind is Eli's sons, who were also priests. Eli's sons were wicked men who were using the priesthood for things they simply should not have been. And ultimately, God killed them too. And then I think about the multitude of religious leaders in Jesus' day who conspired together to murder the Son of God. The point being this, and we can't miss it. You don't get to go to heaven on your daddy's faith. You don't get to go to heaven because your parents are Christians or because you were raised in the church or because proximity to Christian people or because you've experienced God, you've been in the church and you've really felt God move. Good. Thank God you have. But that's not what makes a person saved. You must personally turn your life to Jesus Christ. You must personally follow Jesus. It's a decision in the heart that only you can make, but I don't want us to miss that. We've got two people here that get to experience what is arguably the greatest experience in recorded human history, Exodus 24. The only thing that's even comparable is the transfiguration, and I'll talk about it in a moment. But arguably, the greatest human experience in recorded history, two people that are there still end up being killed by God because they leave and ultimately play with strange fire. So warning to all of us. Today, our focus is going to be on the big picture. The things that we observe in the confirming of God's covenant with His people. It's really the heart of the passage here in Exodus 24. The, it, the, uh, the, the, the elders of Israel saw God. And we're told that not only does God not lay a hand on them, but that they beheld and ate and drank. The only other thing we even have to compare this to is a New Testament experience where three of Christ's disciples saw him transfigured with uh, Moses and Elijah. And Matthew records for us that when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured, that his face was like the sun. Just imagine what that was like. That was the best words they could come up with to help us understand what they saw. But could you imagine seeing the sun from you know, 20 feet away, that his clothes became white. And this is the term they use. is a term us common, you know, 20 people, 2023 wouldn't even understand. But the term they used was that his clothes became whiter than any fuller on earth could whiten something. And a fuller was someone who specialized in taking garments and making them white. That's the best words they could come up with. Those people who specialize in making things white, his clothes became like something they could never do. Now, it was witnessed by three people. But here in Exodus 24, 
74 people witnessed God. This morning, I want to share with you four things that we observe concerning the confirmation of the covenant. Number one, there is a real, tangible, you could even use the word physical, heavenly world that we have yet to see. And real men and women from the past live there. It's real. Think about the transfiguration before coming back to Exodus 24. You know who was there at the transfiguration? Moses and Elisha. Here's what that teaches us. If Moses and Elijah were there, guess what? Moses and Elijah are alive. It was witnessed by three people who wrote it down for us to know about. In fact, the transfiguration is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them took time to record it for us. It was witnessed by three people. Moses has been seen. Elijah has been seen. The fact that God's children live forever is real. Now, I'm going I'm to hammer this a little bit on this particular point, point number one. Because it would seem odd to say that we need to say this is real. We're Christians. We believe this. But you will find that our minds and our hearts actually have a difficult time comprehending what we can't see. And so we, just, we, we want to believe it's real by faith. But we want to quickly quit thinking about it and come back to what I can concretely deal with right now. Listen. Stop. Heaven is real, people. It's real. God is real. He's not some concept that helps us just live a better life. God is a very real, physical being. He exists, yes, in form, different than what we can think of when we think of matter and space here on earth, but God is a real being who has been witnessed a few times in recorded history here by 74 people. Heaven is real. And we have not seen it yet. But there is a very real, tangible, heavenly world we have yet to see. This is true of the heaven that we think of when we think of uh, John chapter 14 and Jesus speaking about him going to his father's place and building for you and I mansions. And that he's going to come and receive us again. But it's also true of the realm in which we live now. There are heavenly beings in the realm in which we live now. I think about, for example, you might remember the story of Elisha and Elisha's servant, and the government didn't like what Elisha was doing, so they come after Elisha. The servant wakes up in the morning, and they're surrounded. The servant wakes up Elisha, and he's like, hey, we're in trouble. We're surrounded. And you know what Elisha does? He says he prays for his servant that God would open his eyes that he could see. And for a brief period of time, 
God supernaturally opened the eyes of Elisha's servant, and what he could then see was they were surrounded by God's heavenly army, and there was nothing to fear. The major point that we have to take away is this. This is real. God is real. Heaven is real. These are not concepts, folks. These are not just uh, religious fables to help us somehow have something to live towards. No, 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 no. This is real. And it would do us some good to focus our minds on the reality of heaven. It is a real place, folks, and that's where we are going. In the New Testament, there's an interesting verse that basically says this, that that which is seen is passing away. But that which is unseen is eternal. Therefore, that which is seen is less real, if we want to use the word real, than that which is unseen. The eternal is forever. The eternal is what does not change. This world, the Bible teaches us, is going to burn with the fervent heat and all the elements thereof, all that we have, all that we know, in this physical world is going to change, folks. And what we see in this incredible moment in history is that there is a very real, very tangible, heavenly world that you and I have yet to see. Number two, we also see here in the ratifying of this covenant that God desires to commune or have fellowship with His creation. God calls them up this mountain, and the elders come up to eat and drink while they saw God and spent time with Him. Just imagine what was that like. They give us a really brief explanation of what they saw with their eyes, of what visually it was like, but there's no real feeling for the atmosphere. Can you just imagine it for a moment? This is an event. This is real. What was it like? Could you imagine being there up on that mountain and, and for this miraculous period of time, God opening your eyes, allowing you to see him? What was that like? We see that God desires to have fellowship and communion with his creation. God is not some angry God up there that just wants people to have to follow laws. His desire, and we see the ratifying of this covenant, was done with a feast, with, his, with the elders coming up and eating and drinking and viewing God. It's, we see this heart of God that He desires to have fellowship with us. He desires to have communion with us. Repeatedly, heaven where we will spend forever with Jesus, is referred to as a banquet. And not just any banquet, but a wedding banquet. And I've been to a lot of banquets, but you know where we always go out the most? 
wedding banquets. They're, they're the greatest. And God says, you want a picture of, uh, in your mind, you want to have some idea of what heaven's going to be like. Think about the greatest, most fun, most, most magnificent wedding banquet you've ever been to. And then understand that's sort of what heaven's going to be like. Folks, what we have to see is that God desires to have fellowship with us. God desires to have communion with us. The very first miracle that Jesus ever did was literally at a wedding feast, turning water into wine. I would say it this way. Our God is not a killjoy. The desire to have fun and fellowship with each other, it's, it's an innate desire put in our heart by our Creator because it's part of His heart. And he desires to have fellowship with us. That is a powerful thought to think that God wants to have fellowship with you. That's what God wants. He wants you to know him, to to love him, to enjoy being in his presence, to eat and drink with him. And ultimately, that's what heaven's going to be like. You know, when God originally created heaven and earth and created mankind, there wasn't a bunch of work and there wasn't a bunch of service before sin entered in. Adam and Eve just walked in fellowship with God. That's what heaven is going to be like. And we see here the heartbeat of God, that God desires to have fellowship with us. When you make your Christianity about all a list of do's and don'ts, it is dry, it is boring, it is burdensome. When it is, give me the list of 630 things of the law, it is, it's awful. It's impossible. But when it becomes about communion with God and fellowship with God and understanding that my Creator just wants me to be in a relationship with Him, it changes it all. And I can tell you something. Learning to live and walk in communion with God, I have not mastered it. I've been you know, saved now for more than 20 years, and I'm still working on it, folks. I have weeks where I do better and weeks where I don't, and days where I do better and days where I don't. But here's one thing I can testify, that during the seasons of my life where I'm not really working on just communing with God, having fellowship with God, I'm not really spending time with God I'm not just enjoying that alone time with God. I'm not really enjoying my time in the Word. During those seasons of my life, where instead of that, I am working, 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 working. I mean, I'm serving, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm going here, I'm going there. All Christian stuff. During that season of my life, my Christianity is just not very rewarding. It's exhausting. My heart's not right. My joy seems to just kind of not be where it needs to be. My, my, my love for God, and I would even say my love for people doesn't really, it's not where it needs to be. And, and it seems like Christianity is sort of like, ugh. But in the seasons of my life where I am just much more devoted to just communion with God, Spending time with God. My mind is on the things of God. I enjoy getting away and just sitting with God. I find enjoyment in just opening the Word to try to let my Father's Word teach me about who He is and who I am and what our relationship looks like. And I just enjoy fellowship with God. It's during those seasons 
My Christianity is way more joyful, way more exciting. It's not a burden, and I find that all the other little things tend to take care of themselves. Because God's design is that we have fellowship with Him. Number three, we see the immeasurable value of the blood in Exodus 24. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abu, uh, Abihu, and 70 of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Then they went up and saw the God of Israel. Then, as in after the verses that preceded it. After Moses and the people sacrificed, and Moses took half of the blood and applied it to the altar, and he took half of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Then they went up and saw God. We see the immeasurable value of the blood. The Bible teaches us that no man can see God and live. And so what happened in Exodus 24 is a miraculous event where God himself in his righteous judgment allowed this event to happen. And there is a reason that these men were not killed, even though they were able to see, literally see God himself. And the reason is because of the blood. The blood was first applied, then they were able to go up and see God. Do not miss it this morning. Now, the indiscerning person will say, what does the blood of bulls and goats have to do with anything? Why would the blood sprinkled of bulls and goats allow somebody to see God? And that's a fair question. I want to explain it this way. What could take a man this morning that's poor? Not a dollar to his name, he's poor. Homeless. What could take that man today and make him wealthy by the end of the day? literally change his status in one day? The answer, quite simple, a big pile of money. But think about it for a moment. Like, what is money? Siri's answering it for us right now. (laughs) This is money. But just take some time to think about this and follow me for a moment. This is nothing but paper and ink. It's not the paper itself that has value. Nor is there some magical thing in this ink that you could melt it down and build buildings out of it and eat it. There's nothing significant about the ink itself that is of value. 
What makes this valuable is that those who have power in our government have made a legal decree that this represents something. And it is what this represents that makes it valuable. It's not the paper itself. It's not even the object itself. It's not the ink on it. It is that legally, this has been legally determined by our government to have value and to represent something of value so we can then trade it for things of value. So it is with the blood of these bulls and goats. It wasn't their blood, but it was what their blood legally represented. It was what their blood legally was pointing forward to, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ, which would, he would ultimately shed for you and I when he died on the cross. It is the blood that brings us into right standing with God. Now, don't miss it. I cannot overexpress the importance of the blood. I mean it sincerely. We could probably do a, at least five, maybe ten-part series on just the importance of the blood. But I want you to see something, right? We're studying Exodus. You remember where the blood started in Exodus? It started with the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb. And they had to take that blood and apply it to the doorpost, right? There, there the blood represented atonement so that they weren't punished with death. But here, that's not the case. Here the blood is necessary for them to simply approach God at all and have fellowship and eat and have joy in His presence. Here's the point, and I pray the Holy Spirit will help you see it this morning. It is always and only through the blood that we approach God. It's the blood that we need when we need to be saved and we need forgiven of our sins and it atones for every wicked thing we've ever done. But it is still the blood, even after we're saved, that allows us to approach a holy God and come into His presence and worship Him. There is never any reason that we can ever approach God except through the blood. When you think that you have significant or extra right to approach God because you've had a good week, you've been spiritual, you've been doing things right, you've read enough scripture, you've made a couple of consecutive church services, you're doing this, you're doing that, and so you feel like now I can really approach God. You are, I can, you are so wrong. There is nothing you can ever do that will make it possible for you to approach God. It is only through the blood. But when the blood is applied, we can go boldly before the throne of grace. And notice it is a covenant. It is a forever deal. This is so important. Because you and I are going to get it wrong from time to time, folks. There have been times in my life I've got it wrong. There have been times in my life I've let my attitude go places it shouldn't. I've let my mind go places it shouldn't. I've, I haven't taken thoughts captive like I should have taken thoughts captive. And then I allowed myself to act upon those thoughts and sin against God and, 
and, and sometimes sin against people. And I know that me and you are not very different in this matter. And it's in those moments where I eventually become convicted. And I know what I need to do is, right, we would use this term, I need to get back to God. Huh? I, need to get, I need to repent. I need to get back to where I was with God. And you know what I typically want to do in my flesh? I want a list of things that I atone for. I'm like, I need to suffer for a few weeks in shame. I need to feel really bad. That's part of it. And depending on how big of a failure, right, we almost have sort of a time frame on how long we should feel bad for what we've done. But then in addition to feeling bad and really shaming myself, there's also good things I need to do to sort of get back in. I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to, change my attitude. I need to get back to more time prayer. I need to get back to more time and study. I mean, I can't skip church. That would be difficult. You know, some of you, you get mad, whatever. You're not feeling good. Not, you're not happy with God, whatever. You get to skip church. I cannot skip church. It would be a big problem if I just skip church. But if I could, right? I need to get back to church. I got these lists of things I need to do. In my flesh, that's how it feels. We all feel that way when we're, when we're away. And I'm going to tell you something. I've learned through the years. All it takes is the blood. None of those things. And listen, we need to have a repentant heart, but none of those things, none of those things motivate God to open his arms wide open and say, come back in, child. There's only one thing, and that's the blood. And I've had to learn to throw myself upon the blood of Jesus. And I've had to learn in those moments to stop it and say, God, I'm coming. Not because I've had two good weeks of repentance under my belt. Not because I've got 15 good Bible studies under my belt. Not because I've fixed this or fixed that. I'm coming and I'm coming now for one reason and one reason only. Because the blood has already been shed and the blood is sufficient and it's all that I need to approach you, God, whether I'm having a bad day or whether I'm having a good day. It is only the blood. It has always been the blood. The blood of Jesus is of immeasurable valuable to us and we as God's people must learn to throw ourselves upon it which brings me to my next point on the blood it has to be applied it's not enough that it was just shed Moses took the blood and applied it to the altar and applied it to the people then they were able to go up and see God there's a similar verse in Revelation that kind of uh, hammers home this point also. I want you to look at it in Revelation 7. Uh, the verses are 14 and 15. Here's what it says. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Note the blood had to be applied. They have washed in the blood, therefore they're before the throne of God. There was the responsibility to wash in that. I have to apply it. And then in Exodus 24, Moses applies the blood. The point is this, folks. I'll say it again about, you know, Nadab and Abihu. It's not enough just to be around it. You have, and it's not enough 
that Jesus just died for you. It's true. Jesus died for you. That's true. His blood was shed for you. That's true. But God so loved the world. God's not willing that any should perish, but most do. God so loved the world that whosoever believes might be saved, but most do not. It's not enough to just know that Jesus died. You've got to apply the blood to your life. You've got to, and what I mean by that is you've got to trust in the blood of Jesus. You have to throw yourself upon the blood of Jesus. You have to look to Jesus and believe in him alone as the only source of salvation, the only way to God, the only way to the Father through him. I have to take what he did and apply it to my life. It's more than just some passing mental assent that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more than just believing Yeah, Jesus must be who he said he is. I mean, how else would he raise from the dead? You have got to take the life and the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you have got to apply it to your life. Number four this morning, the entering into a covenant with God calls for celebration. That's the major point I really think that Exodus 24 teaches us. This is a celebration. They're entering into a covenant with God, and it's a celebration. Yes, yes, the law had just been given. Yes, God had just said, here's the rules for what a relationship with me looks like. And if you follow these rules, you're going to be blessed beyond your wildest imaginations. But if you don't, There will be cursing. There will be destruction. If you sin against God and sin against his ways, it will bring about destruction. But God clarified it for his people. He's like, this is the way. And I want you to note the response was not, oh, wow, we're being stuck in an old prison cell. Instead, it was a response of joy. I remember before I was a Christian thinking, that if I was a Christian, that who, who, it would just be a ball and chain. It'd be like being in prison. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I thought, who wants that? I'm going to tell you something. The devil is a liar. I've been saved for 20 years now, and I promise you, God calls us to freedom. He's not calling us into some prison cell. God is a God of deliverance, and our relationship with him is something to be celebrated. The fact that God gives us some directions, some commands, some laws, we should thank God for that. In Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews, in Psalms 119, it tells us that God's word is like a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Who doesn't want a lamp to their feet? Who doesn't want a light that shows us what way to walk? This is something to be celebrated. This is something to rejoice over. I'm telling you, the devil is a liar. And he wants people to think that entering into a covenant with God, entering into a lifelong, eternal relationship with God, you're not going to have fun. You've got to say no to this, no to that, no to that. The devil is a liar, folks. I'm not telling you Christianity is going to be easy. I've never said that. It's a battle. But I'm going to tell you something. It is every battle I've ever faced 
everything I've ever had to deal with, every hardship that's ever come my way is worth it over and over and over and over again to have the the, the joy that I have in having a relationship with God. It's something to be celebrated. And we have reason to celebrate. We celebrate for the law. We celebrate. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They really aren't. Not just do we celebrate for the gift of God's Word and the law to guide us and direct us. But note second, nothing could be more joyous than simply being with God. That was the great reward of Exodus 24. That was the great reward for that brief moment with Jesus' three disciples when he was transfigured was to just be with him in all of his glory and to see him and know him for who he was. That, that was the greatest reward any of those three guys ever experienced in their time on earth. And our greatest reward ultimately is going to be when we get to heaven and we get to spend forever with him too. The amazing thing I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team if you guys would come. The amazing thing is that what we see in Exodus 24, what we see at the transfiguration, is just a taste of what is to come. It is just a taste of what is to come. I want to remind the church something this week that the Holy Spirit reminded me as I was studying this passage. We have very real reason to celebrate and live with joy. I know, I know, if we focus on the world and all that is going wrong in the world, all the things we can't stop, I mean, God himself told us in his word, the world would wax worse. You can try to stop it. We need to call out evil. It's part of the church's job. It's our job to expose the works of darkness. But guess what, folks? As we do that faithfully, we're still not going to stop what God has already declared is going to happen. And we can focus on all that's going wrong in the world. And guess what? There's no reason for joy. We can focus on all the pain and all the suffering that's happening. There's no reason for joy. But this world is not our home. We are just, the Bible calls us pilgrims, like temporarily displaced here, traveling through to our actual home. And if we would get our focus off of this temporary pilgrimage, and we would get our focus on the reality of a very real, tangible, heavenly world that is ours and it's coming for us. If we would focus on that, I'm telling you, we have very real reason to have great joy today, right now. And I believe God wants His sons and daughters to walk in that joy. I believe God wants his sons and daughters to have this focus on 
the reality of heaven that's coming for the true sons and daughters of God. I think that might be one of the things that really separates us from the from the world. When they look at us, they see a sense of joy. Hey, it's not. I'm not. I'm not extra joyful because God makes all my pain go away in this world. I'm extra joyful because this world ain't my home, man. I don't even belong here. I'm just here for a little brief period of time. I'm going to heaven. 